0: We are nearly through the Picture of God series. We've got this week, and then next week, and then we're going to go through uh, a brief four-week series on Psalm 23, uh, and then we're going to do a coordinated sermon series with uh, Hope Bethlehem. And so, uh, through the summer, Adam can preach here; I can preach in Bethlehem, uh, and we can share a little bit of the stage uh, in that way as well. So, I'm looking forward to the Psalm 23 series. It's going to be it's going to be good. Um, so. We're going to be going through today a picture of God and looking at sort of the, the story known as the, the restoration of Peter after his, after his denials of Jesus. But I want to kind of set the stage a little bit uh, with a story from my own life. Several years ago, uh, after Jess and I got married, we were going from our apartment back to Nyack College, uh, where we went to school. And I don't know if I had a class or something, or we were running late, but I was in a bit of a hurry, like I normally am when I'm driving. And this guy... Uh, cut us off, getting onto the orn ramp onto Route 287, which is sort of big major you know highway up there. And he cut us off, and I'm like, "What an idiot!" You know, like this comes out of my mouth. Like I'm, I'm angry towards this person, and get in front of me. And of course, they're going slower than I want to go, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" And I'm thinking the whole time, like, I would never do this. Like I wouldn't do this. I am a much better driver than this. I would never do this. And. So we're like poking along around the on-ramp and I'm waiting. So like when the chance came where the guardrail went away and I, and I could get into the middle lane of the highway, I was like, shoom, like over into the middle lane. I was like, I'm going to blow this guy's doors off in my little Honda Civic, you know? So I, I, I go over there. And I'm like, ah, you know, and right as I do this, I look in my rear view and see that I've just completely cut off a pickup with two guys in it who are now fishtailing because I cut them off so hard and I like got a little one finger salute and they were probably yelling like, what an idiot, you know, about me. Uh, and, and I was, I was so, then I'm even madder, right? Then I'm madder in this moment because I, I, I now have done what I said somebody else shouldn't do and, and I've been so self-righteous about it in one way, and now I've incriminated myself with my own behavior, so I'm projecting back onto this first driver like it's his fault, he shouldn't have done that, and anyway, I have been a little bit more sanctified since then, I'm not as angry a driver, Uh, I've gained a little bit more patience in my driving, you can give me some grace, a little bit in that, but if you're anything like me, which I assume most people are, if you're anything like me, our lives are full of these little hypocrisies, in which we have self-justifying behavior on one side and we say, We're so great, we put ourselves on these pedestals in one way and look down on other people in, in, in other ways, but but then we go back on it and we mess things up and we don't actually live up to our own high standards and then we're mad at ourselves and we do these things all the time. Like we can't believe that someone would spend so much money on that type of clothing, but meanwhile, like our cell phone bill or our cable bill is through the roof over here, right? Like we have this little bit of self-righteousness or, uh, you know, we, we can't believe that somebody would smoke or drink like they do in that way. Meanwhile, like reading all this fatty food and we're headed for pre-diabetes ourselves, right? Like, both don't really the same they're the same thing right or we can't believe that this person would vote for this candidate meanwhile our candidate has just been brought up in the news for like these accusations against him why would they do it's, it's this thing that we do where we put ourselves on a pedestal and just think like our way is the best and everyone if they just acted like us everything would be great we all do this whether we realize it or not we take these positions of self-righteousness or we end up getting surrounded by so much self-righteousness or, you know, people are so self-aggrandizing that, that we actually start to feel this self-doubt about ourselves. Or, or we take so much time to, to self-justify our own behavior that when we mess something up, we actually become self-loathing because of what we've done. And now we can't stand ourselves and we're angry at everybody, and we're angry at ourselves. And so, how do you feel, how do you feel when you mess things up? Like, how do you feel when you jack something up so badly? Especially after maybe you've taken a position of of self-righteousness. How do you feel when you've burned a bridge or you've said something so hurtful to a spouse or a family member or one of your kids or a friend? How do you feel when you see somebody else make those mistakes? When you see somebody sin, do something wrong? What, What feelings come up? inside of you when somebody makes a poor choice in your eyes, and you see them do something they shouldn't? Have you ever messed something up so badly that you felt like, ah, I don't know if I can face this. I don't know if there's any coming back from this. I don't know if there's any recovery, any restoration that can happen, that maybe that even you could be restored. So today I would say that, that this talk is, is really for all of us hypocrites. All of us self-righteous, those of us who self-doubt after we self-justify. The self-loathing, we just can't get it right, but keep taking a position of self-righteousness. Namely, all of us. We all do this in different ways. To talk for those who need grace, and also for those of us who have trouble giving grace to the people around us. Which, again, I would say is probably most of us. So we're going to be looking today at John 21. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can look at that up in your phone or your, your Bible's there. If you don't have one, you can look in the back table as well. we got some back there. But to understand John 21, we need to get into a little bit of the backstory, which there's quite a bit of it here. I need to front load it a little bit. Um, it's it's in John 21. We we find Jesus. This is now post-resurrection, post-Easter. Easter. He has risen and... Uh, some of his disciples are now back in Galilee, which is where they came from. This is the kind of their home territory where they grew up. And Jesus shows up in Galilee, and he's eating breakfast with them. He's talking with them. And in particular, he pulls Peter aside for a follow-up conversation after his three denials. If you remember, Peter is one of the closest disciples to Jesus. There's Peter and his former business partners, James and John, who are sort of the inner circle to Jesus. And they're all from Galilee. They were all in this fishing business together that they left to follow Jesus. We know that Jesus uh, first met Peter, James, and John, and probably Peter's brother, uh, on a morning when they were coming back in from from an all-night fishing excursion. The best fishing is typically at night in this lake of Galilee. And so they had fished all night and they'd caught nothing. When they come in, Jesus tells Peter, go out deeper again. Put your nets out into deeper water. And Peter, in classic Peter form, pushes back a little bit and is like, Lord, we fished all night. And Jesus is like, just go do it. And they go and they put their nets down into deeper water. And it says that they caught so many fish that it was ripping the nets apart. And then they load up the boats with it, these two boats, that they start sinking in the water. And Peter just bursts out. He just blurts out to Jesus, like, away from me. Lord, away from me, for I am a sinner. He realizes that Jesus is altogether different, altogether separate from anything he has ever encountered. and He shouldn't even be in his presence. He has this sort of belief right from the beginning. But Jesus assures him that all will be well and says, what? Follow me. He says, follow me, Peter, James, John. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. At some point uh, in Peter's life, his, his name, his birth name was actually Simon, son of John. Uh, not John the, the, the apostle, but John, his father, Simon, son of John. At some point, Jesus changes his name. Changes his name to Peter, which in Greek or Aramaic means, means rock. So he gives him this new name, Peter, rock. And he says, you're going to be a fisher of men. He gives him a new name and a new purpose and they leave their fishing business and they start following Jesus all over Galilee and Judea later when when Jesus presses the disciples if they're too going to abandon him like other people were see his words were getting more and more challenging to the status quo Jesus presses his disciples and says are you going to leave me as well and Peter says to whom would we go to whom would we go? You have the words of life. You are the Messiah. You're Israel's Savior. Like, where, where else would we go? Jesus. And it's at this moment that Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. He says this to Peter. For all the disciples, on this rock, I will build my church. And I, I think it was a little bit of a double meaning. I think Jesus did this on purpose, That saying that Peter would be a leader in the early church, that, that he is a rock, right? And that, and that the, the church is... Uh, potentially could be built kind of upon his his leadership which we see happen in the book of acts but also that god would build his church on the rock of the gospel that that jesus is the messiah that his words really are leading to full life. And I think it's sort of this double meaning that Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. But time and again, we see Peter passionately following Jesus, passionately going after Jesus, passionately believing in Jesus, proclaiming allegiance to Jesus, questioning Jesus, arguing with Jesus, walking on water with Jesus. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And I have to conclude that Peter really actually loved Jesus, really actually believed who Jesus said he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, and he was worth living for and dying for. But at the Last Supper, what happens? Jesus says to Peter, he says something really interesting. He says, Peter, Satan wants you. He's going to try and get you to be separate from me, to pull away from me, to fall away, but I've prayed for you that your faith would withstand. Like, there's a whole mystery in that, right? That Jesus prays for us to, with, to withstand temptation. But he says, Peter, after you've messed up, turn back. Turn back to me and strengthen your brothers. Strengthen the other disciples as well. Just a little word here, just a little picture of God here. Jesus knew that he was going to mess up. Jesus knew that he was going to, to deny him three times. Yet he still loved him. He still cared for him. He still served him. He still prayed for him. This is, this is a picture of our God, gracious and concerned for us, not expecting or believing that like we're just going to be perfect and get it all right all the time. So Jesus tells Peter he's going to fall away, he's going to deny, and Peter says, no way will I deny you or fall away. There's not a chance of that. I would never, ever do that. And He says this, even if all these other guys do, no way would I. No way would I fall away. Even if all these jokers do, mm, not me, not me. He takes this position of kind of arrogance, kind of self-righteousness, like mm, they might, I never would. But the story goes on, right? We see that Jesus is arrested. We see that he's persecuted. We see that Peter kind of hangs back at a distance trying to see what's going on. And then this servant girl comes and says, hey, weren't you with him? And Peter's like, no, 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 not me, not me. The crowd gets bigger. Weren't, you definitely were with him. Peter, Peter says, no way. Finally, the crowd says, we could tell from your accent you were with him. And he starts calling down curses on himself. He says, no way was I with him. I swear on the temple. I swear on the Torah. No way. No way was I with him. Let me be a curse from, curse from the land of the living if I was ever with that man. And the rooster crows and destroys Peter. Jesus goes on to be crucified and Peter's left Weeping, a broken man, because he couldn 't even fulfill his own self righteousness and his arrogant claims, eventually we see Jesus raised from the dead and he makes a couple appearances to Peter and the disciples in the area around Jerusalem. A little while later, Peter and other disciples make a trek back to Galilee. Now, so- If you read the scriptures, you see that Jesus actually told them, go to Galilee, I'll meet you there. So they didn't go back for any bad reasons necessarily, but they go back to their home territory to meet up with Jesus like he told them to. Maybe Jesus believed it would be better to meet them there, away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, away from the accusations might come, the danger that was there, but they go back to their home area. And I want to pick up the story in John 21 of what happens when Jesus has this interaction with them in Galilee. Uh, Look at John 21, verse 1. Afterward, after all these things, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee, the, the big lake there. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, all right, the original fishing partners, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. Like classic Peter, right? The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. Uh, it was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So in these first couple of verses, we see that, that they're back in Galilee, in their hometown, Right? These seven disciples are back in their hometown, but, but rather than proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming everything they've seen, okay, the, the magnificent things that Jesus did, his love for sinners, his, his being crucified, his being raised from the dead, they go back fishing. They go back to what they know. Their leader, Jesus, is making these appearances to them around Jerusalem here and there, but they probably know that they've let him down. Because it wasn't just Peter that scattered. They all did. They all doubted. And now who knows what's going to happen to this movement that they thought they were starting. So they bury themselves back into their work. Back into what they know. Back into a place of comfort. Rather than thinking deeply about who God is. Who Jesus has been painting a picture of all along. And who they are in this new movement. Do You ever do this? You ever bury yourself in work rather than facing reality? Bury yourselves in other things? Like I know... I do this. When I I proclaim my love for my wife, for my kids, and then I I betray them and I hurt them in some way, And, and it's actually much easier to just go back to work. Just to go back thinking about other things rather than actually face the apology that might need to happen or face who I actually am. I'm not as great as I thought I was. Well, let me just go work on a sermon. I can probably do good at that, right? Rather than actually face where I have fallen short. That's what That's what these guys are doing there. I mean, do you ever do that where you bury yourself in distractions rather than face the brokenness in your life? So these guys bury themselves back into their work. In verse 5 and 6, though, Jesus shows up on the scene. Now he's somewhat veiled, he's on the shore, he's about about 300 feet, 100 yards from, from the boat. He's on shore, and I don't know if there's, there's probably a mist or something on the lake. It's, it's morning, so it's, maybe the lake's colder than the air around, so there's this mist coming up. So they can't really see him on the shore. Maybe he looks a little bit different after the resurrection. They can't tell that it's him, and Jesus asks a question. Now, they can't really see him. He's just kind of shouting off into the mist. He says, friends, didn't you catch anything? I think there's a little bit of a, a poke there from Jesus, meaning like, how'd that work out for you? This whole going back to work thing. Sometimes we can't see Jesus on the shoreline of our lives, but He stands there and He says, "How's that working out for you? This avoiding your failures, avoiding your brokenness, burying yourself in your hobbies and your work and your playthings. How's that working out for you?" I don't think it's necessarily guilt. I think it's Him actually probing deep into our hearts to say, "Like, what are you really finding refuge in? Where are you really burying yourself in? In the gospel, into the freedom that I bring, the grace I bring, the love I bring, or is it into your work?" Into these other things. So he says, friends, didn't you catch anything? And they're like, no, no, we didn't. And Jesus tells them to throw their net on the other side of the boat. And they catch this massive haul of fish, 153 large, fifth, uh, large fish to be exact. I think, I think John is putting in real details here to say like this was a real thing that happened. Think about this though, they fish all night. They catch nothing. This unrecognized man shows up and tells them to try again. They catch a huge amount of fish as they're hauling in the fish sweating straining you can almost see that the wheels turning inside of John's head inside of John's heart John the the sentimental the sensitive son of thunder and he's like I've been here before we've done this before holy you know what it's Jesus like it's the Lord he's here in Galilee that's him he's experienced this exact scene before back when Jesus first called him So Peter, who's probably so engrossed in his work, he realizes when John says this, it's Jesus. He's probably like half naked, throws on his outer garment, jumps in the water, and swims the 300 feet to shore to find Jesus. Peter, so bold and so like, just thinks with passion first, or doesn't even think, just lives with passion first. I I love him. He gets to the shore, he probably gives Jesus this, this big wet hug and the boat pulls in a minute later. It really wasn't that far from shore. I feel like John's like, we caught him on the way back in. It wasn't that far. Like, we got there. And Peter's giving Jesus a hug. Peter jumps back into the boat and helps pull the rest of the nets in. And Jesus calls them over to a fire he's gotten going. He's cooking some fish that he had already procured from somewhere. Uh, and, and he cooks them this bread and this this fish. And I don't know if you ever had fish for breakfast. Uh, not something we frequently go for. But I can tell you, when you've worked really hard and you've strained really hard, fresh fish... On a campfire is a really good meal. If any of you have ever gone camping and fishing, it's fantastic. And so here they are. They come back to this great breakfast. But, friends, this is a picture of our God. He breaks bread, He serves them breakfast, He eats with them. This is our God. This is what we've seen all throughout the gospel accounts Jesus regularly sitting and validating people, serving sinners eating with them, bringing them fellowship, bringing them back into fellowship. The, the the dirty, the doubters, the hypocrites like you and me. This is his grace towards us. This is his grace towards the disciples in this moment, constantly inviting us back to the table, saying, I know where you've been. Come back to the table with me. Come find fulfillment here. Let me lift Your heads. Psalm 25, which we read earlier, says that God doesn't remember the sins of our youth and the rebelliousness of our hearts, but instead he remembers us through the lens of his love and his compassion for us. Jesus meets them where they're at, in the middle of their hiding and their shame and their embarrassment and their avoiding of the mission he sent them on, and he invites them to dine with him. I mean, this is pure grace. This is a picture of our God. But if you know the story, It goes on and gets even more intimate with with Peter. If you look at verse 15, you see that Jesus pulls Peter aside. If you remember the last time they shared a meal together in this way and Jesus pulled Peter aside to talk to him, it didn't go great. So I can only imagine the the feeling that Peter has in his heart when Jesus says, Peter, come, come talk with me. Verse 15 says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord. Do you know that I love you? And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Man, that caught me for some reason. I think John wrote this letter, this this book, this chapter, particularly later in his life. He probably knows what happened to Peter at this point. He said, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus pulls Peter aside and asks a question three times. Do you really love me more than these? I think there's two things happening in the question. When you look into the Greek, it's not necessarily clear which way he's asking this. I think, first off, he could be asking him, do you really love me more than these nets, these boats, these fishing tools, this business? Do you really love me more than your fishing buddies? Do you really love me more than these, Peter? Or I think more likely he's asking him, do you really love me more than these men love me? Poking at Peter's arrogance again. Do you really love me more than they do? Like you claimed so boldly before? I think that's the question that really gets to the heart of the matter for Peter, what Peter needed to grasp in this moment. Symbolically, I think Jesus asks Peter this question three times because of his three denials. I think it is, there is a reason that Jesus does this. But I think this is actually a recurring theme in Peter's life if you read about him. Multiple times he needs to have multiple interactions with Jesus for him to get something. You read into Acts that he has this vision that he's supposed to now be able to eat whatever food he wants. And he's like, no, I'll never do it. And the vision comes again. He's like, no, I'll never do it. And the vision comes, like three times he needs to hear it. Like Peter's kind of thick headed. So I think Jesus is doing this for a reason, trying to get it into his head to really think, do I, do I actually really love Jesus more than this fishing business? And do I actually love them, comparingly, more than these other guys? Because if you remember back to the Last Supper, Peter was like, even if all these other jokers fall away, mm-mm, not me, I love you more than them. I'm better than them. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But he also believed that he was better than the rest of the disciples. And here Jesus is poking at that self-righteousness saying, Do you really love me more than these? Do you really love me, Peter? Do you, do you really? Then if you do, he says, if you do, then go care for my disciples, go care for these brothers of yours. Feed them, nourish them, lead them, shepherd them the way that I have shepherded you, with grace, not with self-righteousness, Peter. Go shepherd them with grace. And Jesus recommissions Peter, the, the, the failure, the loudmouth, after the denials, the shame, the embarrassment, and says, you have a mission to do, Peter. Go and care for my sheep, i.e., the church. And someday you too will die for me, he's saying. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will lead you where you do not want to go. And like I said, I think John knew what Christian tradition has said for centuries is that Peter was crucified by Emperor Nero in Rome. Went to Rome to lead the church there, probably escaping some of the persecution in Jerusalem. The last time we see Peter, he's freed from jail in the book of Acts and we don't hear from him again in that book. I think it's because he went to Rome where he was leading a fledgling church there And he's crucified by Nero for being a Jesus follower. The rock, Peter, the rock, though, had been softened to shepherd the church. You see, Peter, like so many of us, needed to be broken of his own self-arrogance and his self-righteousness to find grace, to be a shepherd servant of the church. He needed to be broken of his self-justifying ways so he could realize that he, too, needs Jesus. He, too, needs Jesus' grace. And then when he has received it, he then can offer it to the people around him. So what about you? Do you have grace for others? I find that often I have grace for people that sin like I do. I got grace for those people because they look and act like me. But oftentimes I'm lacking in grace for the people that sin differently than me. Are you able to have grace for the people in your life Do you believe that God can restore them? Do you believe that God can restore you? Do you believe that God can give you grace like he did for Peter and like he did for the rest of these disciples as well? Friends, this is a picture of our God here. He meets us where we're at, shows us our dirt, shows us the things we've messed up, our brokenness, and says, I love you so much. Have a meal with me. Have breakfast with me. Go and be part of my team that is serving the world. Go experience grace. Give grace to others. I know you're not perfect. None of you are. Only I am. I love you. I've given you a new name. I've given you a new purpose to be on mission with Jesus. Friends, religion, religious legalism, religious self-righteousness will say you've messed up too bad. You're no good. You better do all these things to get God's blessing back. To get back into God's good graces. And the gospel says, here's breakfast. Here's breakfast. Come and sit and be with me. You are loved and forgiven. And the world says, live with bravado. Live with bold passion like Peter. Don't ever admit that you've done anything wrong. Don't admit weakness. Don't admit failure. And the gospel says, look, there's only one true success story. And it belongs to Jesus. But the gospel says we get to belong to that story. That he's the successful one that we link onto and we hold onto and claim his victory for our lives. That we now can be a fisher of men and women in the world. That we can now feed other sheep the same grace that we need. The same care that we have received from Jesus. That is a picture of our God constantly extending grace And inviting us to join him in the purpose of inviting others into the kingdom of grace with us. By the way, we share our meals. By the way, we extend invitation to people into our lives. By the way, we extend grace to one another in the church. Can I just say, friends, the church is historically terrible at extending grace. Can we not be that kind of church, please? Can we be a church that says, man, I am a sinner. I love you. You're forgiven. Let's move on. Like this is the gospel that we have been given. It's grace that we get to extend to failures like us, broken people like us, by the way we point people to the true success story, and that's Jesus, who sits on the throne at the right hand of God, proven successful by his resurrection. Would you pray with me?